Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. It comes today from Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to be reading right out of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 21 through 26. Jesus is speaking this entire time. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone says, anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And I'd like to invite you to pray with me for a second. And as we do that, realize uh, the, the details don't matter, but there's a lot happening in the room today. Already there has been. And I suspect yet again. And so, Spirit, we want to come before you uh, as people who frequently are distracted. Our minds wander off into various places. We think out in front of the present moment. We think about the have-tos and the obligations and the demands, and it pulls us away from being attentive and present to what is happening right now in our midst. And so we want to come as we deal with a significant subject today. We want to come and we want to be present to you and in particular to what your spirit has for us, to what he might be leading us into, to courageous steps he might have for us to take. We want to lay aside and reject outright any notion of going through the motions or playing church or simply uh, making this all routine. We recognize that your word has a searching quality to it. It moves deep into us, penetrates past initial defenses and gets down into the heart of who we are and what motivates us and what drives us. And we want your spirit to go there today and we want to be people who cooperate with what happens. So we invite you to speak to us, to be present with us and to keep our hearts attentive to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers are going to come at this point, and they're going to pass the offering baskets around yet again. No, the money's not in there for you to take out this time. We're not going to do that. But what I'd like each of you to do is to take a single piece of paper that is in the offering basket and just hang on to it. And once you get the paper, if you can find a pencil, there are some in the chairs in front of you. Or if you brought a pencil or a pen, hang on to it. And in a moment, I'm going to have you write something down. But as they pass that out... Let me mention, this is the second week of our To the Table series. We're beginning this new year of 2019 by focusing on 
the Lord's table, or if you prefer, by focusing on the practice of communion. And since about the 4th century, the Lord's Supper has been the unifying centerpiece of Christian worship. What does that mean? That means that since about the 4th century, within the Christian church, the communion table has been the center of Christian worship. It's been... It's been the event that pulls people together, pulls Christians together, unifies them, tells the story of God, proclaims the gospel, and reminds people of who they are in Christ. So when we see the table as it sits in front of us now, when we see the elements on the table, uh, the bread and the cup, and when we, on the times we celebrate communion, get out of our seats and come forward to the table, to receive the elements, we are engaging our bodies in remembering the good news of our salvation. The communion liturgy we recite together each time we celebrate communion proclaims God's redemptive story, his plan for human beings since the very beginning. And this practice of the Lord's table, this coming to celebrate communion, shapes us. It shapes us individually And it shapes us as a congregation, as a people. It shapes us, in other words, as a we. And last weekend we talked about the communal aspect of the Lord's table. Jesus ate his last supper with his friends. And at the last supper, Jesus established the first communion. When he took the bread and he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to his disciples. And then he commanded his friends to thereafter celebrate his life and death and resurrection whenever they gathered together at the table. Last week then was about the reality of our Christian faith being lived out in relationships with other Christ followers. Meaning, this is a table of community. Jesus is the host. We are invited to the table as his guests. And we sit at his table as brothers and sisters in Christ. So, we remembered last weekend... Our faith journey is not just this private affair between me and God or between you and God. In fact, we journey together as a faith community. And we remember our togetherness when we come to the Lord's table. And today we are thinking about the table of reconciliation. Reconciliation is a rich word. And it has profound significance for us in our relationship with God, and it has equally profound significance in our relationships with what we are going to call today the other, meaning our relationships with friends, our relationships with our family members, our relationships perhaps with our parents or with our children, relationships with siblings, relationships with spouses. It has profound significance in our relationships with the other, and that other might be with other people in the church. It might be enemies we work alongside each and every day, people that we don't get along with. In the culture we live in now, perhaps some of us perceive of the other as people with, of other races or of other religions or of other sexual orientations. They become the other as we think of them. Whomever is an other, I want to suggest to you, is relevant to the table of reconciliation. See, reconciliation is a process 
of overcoming hostility and making peace. It's a profound concept. Overcoming hostility, overcoming animosity, and making peace. It is about people and groups, then, who are at odds with each other for whatever reason. There is distance between them. There is an us and there is a them. Or, as we're saying it today, there is a me and there is an other. The process of reconciliation overcomes the hostility, overcomes the animosity, and makes peace. Think of it this way, then. Reconciliation is often a long process of people or groups gradually overcoming their alienation from each other. The distance shrinks. As ideally, each party, but realistically sometimes only one party, exchanges places with the other. It's a crucial part of what I want to try to emphasize today. That reconciliation requires at some level the ability to exchange places with whomever the other is that we're thinking of and get inside their shoes and feel the world from their shoes. Reconciliation is about slowly standing in solidarity with them instead of standing against them. And forgiveness is obviously a central component of this reconciliation process, and we will talk about this in a moment. But here's the thing. The table of reconciliation is an essential practice for the people of God, for us, because today's culture is deeply divided over practically everything. Think about it. Divided over race. Divided over politics. Divided over age. Divided over gender. Divided over sexual orientation. And all these categories and many more. There's an us There is a them. There is an other. And the church often and sadly mimics what is going on in the culture. Follows right along with what is happening in the culture. So the church too gets characterized by division, by tension, by anger. It's as though we live with our radar on high alert to detect the other. So we can distance ourselves from them or otherwise stand against them. This is in the culture, and sadly, this is in the church. And I want to say as clearly as I can today, followers of Jesus Christ are following a reconciler. He stepped into the middle of this us-versus-them situation or this us-versus-them narrative. He did it all the time. He planted himself right in the middle of these us-versus-them situations, and he brought the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus regularly stood by the side of what everybody else thought was the other, and he brought the ministry of reconciliation. Think about it this way. The incarnation, what we just celebrated at Christmas, his coming to earth was itself an act of reconciliation where Jesus put on flesh and he stood in the shoes of the other, which in that case was us. And then what did he do? He reconciled us to God. And in this chaotic and angry and divided world, followers of Jesus Christ are to be reconcilers. We are to be a reconciling presence in this fractured and divisive world. 
At the table, we remember our reconciliation with God, and then we go from the table to offer reconciliation to the other. So I don't generally like to give out assignments, and many of you don't like to get them. So we're in the same boat today. But I'd like you to take out that piece of paper, if you would, and something to write with. This is very short. I'm not going to stop and give us time for this. But what I would like you to do now or in a minute or two is write down the name of the other in your life who harmed you in a way that continues to hurt or haunt you. The name of the other who said or did something and it damaged your soul. And in spite of all the prayers and all the Bible verses, all the sermons, all the I'm sorry, all the I forgive you, you know in moments of authenticity the damage still remains. And the distance between you and the other still remains. Write down the name of someone you would like to reconcile with. In other words, even if it is only you finally forgiving and letting go, meaning this, the other person may not be interested, the other group may not be interested, the other person may be dead. So it may not be possible for reconciliation to be mutual. It may just mean you come to terms with it and you forgive and you release it. My encouragement is for you to write down a name of someone who is the other in your mind. And what I'd like you to do is hold that paper for the duration of the service, and you'll have a chance to respond with it soon. But in many respects, everything that we are talking about in this particular message has to do with the name on that piece of paper. So now hold the paper, look at the name, Think about the epidemic of anger and the epidemic of rage in today's culture. And here once more, Jesus is teaching from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. So as we think about the table of reconciliation today, I have three thoughts. And the first is, at the table, we remember God has reconciled us to himself. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, the Apostle Paul says this, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. The words that are in this passage matter immensely. We were alienated from God, distant from God, separated from God. Paul says we were enemies of God because of our sin. We were, in other words, the offender, and he was the offended. We were the other, and yet God took the initiative to reconcile. This is really important to what we're trying to get at today. It's really basic as well, and it's really easy to forget. We offended God, but he took the initiative to reconcile 
with us, and we follow him. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He reconciled us through the cross. He overcame the hostility between us and him, and he made peace with us. The beauty and the richness of reconciliation is packed into that single verse. He reconciled us through the cross. He overcame the hostility between us and him, and he made peace with us. As one writer puts it, the Lord's Supper is a feast of forgiveness and reconciliation. At Jesus' last supper, or the first communion, he washed the feet of the other who would betray him. I want us to really sink into this, because we're going to not get it if we don't. At the first communion, Jesus washed the feet of the other who was about to betray him. He sat down at the table with the other who was about to betray him, and he broke bread with the other who was about to betray him. So Jesus sat at the table with Peter, whom he knew was going to betray him. He sat at the table with Judas Iscariot, whom he knew was going to rat him out for cash. Jesus knew this. He knew what Judas was about to do, but he still got down on his hands and knees, untied Judas's sandals, and washed his dirty feet. And then he fellowshiped with him at the table. See, this is the heart of God. He's at the table, fellowshipping, inviting, being with scoundrels. Now, we may not realize this, but he washed the feet and sat at the table with nine other disciples who ran for safety when Jesus was arrested. So 11 of his 12 friends abandoned him in his darkest hour. Only John stayed with him, but Jesus washed all 24 feet. And he fellowshiped at the table with all 12 of them. And this is what emerges out of this. What emerges out of this is the image of God. What emerges out of this is the heart of God. What comes out of this is a picture of God that stops us in our tracks, makes us scratch our head and say, he does that, and on the heels of that, echoing in the distance is, and we follow him. Look at the name on your paper. The table is a place for broken and sinful people. The table is a place for enemies of God. The table is for the other. And we, you, me, are the other. At the table, we come to eat and drink and fellowship with an indescribably gracious and forgiving God who, because of Jesus Christ, forgives our sins completely and reconciles us to God Completely. Jesus overcomes the hostility between me and God and you and God. And he makes peace between me and him and between you and him. And this is the celebration at this table and we follow him. So the table is a place and the table is a practice where we remember God's reconciling love. We encounter his presence Yet again, we step back and we remember who we now are because of what God has done. We were once far away, but he brought us near. 
We were once enemies, but we are now his friends. We were once the other, standing on the outside. Now we are seated at his table, all because of Jesus' initiating love and amazing grace. And echoing in the distance is this very important phrase, and we follow him. So secondly, the reconciliation we receive at the table is to be offered to others. What happens at the table does not stay at the table. His amazing grace and his indescribable love is to so captivate, and I would even say transform us, what we, what we receive at the table we then offer to those who have harmed or hurt us. In other words, we follow Jesus toward the other who's harmed us. And we follow Jesus into the process of reconciliation. You will see this on the screen if you're someone who uses our app. This entire quote is on the app. This is a very significant statement by someone who's extremely smart. He's saying this in ways I can't possibly say it. It's long, but it's not really that complicated. It's in the app. If you want to look at this, I would encourage it throughout the week. Or if you want to follow on the screens, there it is. The table of the Lord is a catalyst for reconciliation on the horizontal level as well, meaning between people. This normal, everyday activity of eating will be the occasion for undoing the abnormal but all-too-common reality of human enmity and discord. In a broken and fragmented world, the church is called to be the first fruits of a new creation by embodying a reconciled community, and the way we begin to learn that is at the communion table. The habits and practices of examination and reconciliation that are part of the Eucharist are like training wheels meant to let us try out forgiveness and reconciliation. And in this respect, the Eucharist is just a macrocosm of what the church is called to be as the new humanity, a community that gathers irrespective of preferences, tastes, class, or ethnicity in order to pursue a common good. I often tell my children that one of the reasons we go to church is to learn to love people we don't really like that much, people we find irritating, odd, and who grate on our nerves. The church, we, look around the room, we are to be an example in this world of a reconciling community. That is, a community of people who have received such profound grace and forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ that we celebrate at the table, we offer grace and we offer forgiveness to each other and to the world. In our scripture reading, Jesus is beginning his masterful sermon on the mount. He starts to unpack in his sermon kingdom ethics what kingdom ethics are, and how they work themselves out in the real world. The new ethics of the table, as we talked about last week, kingdom values to live and uphold, a new way of thinking and being and relating to others. He starts to unpack this in the Sermon on the Mount. He gets into the particulars in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is not by chance. As soon as he decides to get into the particulars, he starts with anger. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's Old Testament stuff. 
That's Ten Commandment ideas. He's saying to his disciples, you've been told this, you shall not murder. That's right out of the Ten Commandments. And then he goes on. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. I mean, the game just changed. In the New Kingdom ethic, anger is judged like murder. The heart, where anger is, is as crucial as the hands, where murder is. Righteousness, in other words, is about the inner life for those who are in Christ. Notice, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister. Jesus is teaching his disciples how they are to relate to each other, brother and sister. And what he's saying very clearly is, brothers and sisters, disciples, fellow travelers on the journey do not relate to each other with anger, ever. For the follower of Jesus, it is not just about avoiding murder. It's about anger being transformed out of the heart so it does not inflict its damage on others. See, following the rule prohibiting murder just got replaced with being a different kind of person who's being transformed from the inside. In the kingdom, in the church, anger, hostility, condemnation, bitterness has no place. At the risk of pushing a bit too far, I want you to think about the reputation of the church in the world right now and hear this again. In the kingdom of God, in his church, anger, hostility, condemnation, bitterness has absolutely no place. Jesus continues in Matthew 5. If you are in the temple offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift right there in front of the altar and go, and here's this great word again, and be reconciled to them. This is an ethic from beyond, as one writer describes it. Jesus was not replacing the rule against murder with a new rule against anger. Whenever we think of Jesus, don't ever think of rule. It doesn't work like that. It is not something to rigidly and formulaically follow every time and every circumstance and every time we convert what Jesus is saying into a new rule to follow every time we've missed the point of what he's saying. That all being said, the teaching here from Jesus is gripping and sobering if we let it. So it's legitimate to kind of make this relevant to what we deal with today, to put it this way. If you are coming to the Lord's table and you remember a brother or a sister, someone in the room with you, a fellow Christ follower on the journey, has something against you, you messed up toward them, you sinned against them, or there's some other kind of animosity or tension or fallout, Jesus says, leave the table and go pursue reconciliation. Wait a second. I mean, Jesus is just being dramatic here, isn't he? He's prone to do these things. He tends to go overboard every now and then, doesn't he? He likes to speak in these hard and kind of radical categories because it makes his speeches sound better. I mean, surely he doesn't mean if someone has something against us, we should make it a priority to pursue reconciliation. Or does that, is that exactly what he means? 
Now, obviously, relational discord and animosity rarely, if ever, evaporate with the snap of a finger. Or, you know, I'm sorry, I did that, I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to run now and go get in line for communion. It doesn't work like that. Again, this is not a rule. But Jesus is indeed describing a kind of person whose inner world is transforming. And they are attentive to their own anger, to their own judgment, to their own condemnation, to their own tendency to look out at everybody else and critique and criticize and make them the other and stand against them. But the person who's becoming transformed, they're attentive to those things and they're attentive to the relational tensions and to the relational conflicts and they're sensitive to the Spirit of God's leading to pursue reconciliation just like God did with us. We were the one who offended Him. And yet He initiated our reconciliation. You see, Jesus knew something about anger, which is why he talked about it first when he got into the ethics of the kingdom. Jesus knew anger stirs the kettle of evil in this life, in our relationships, and in this world. Think of it this way. If somehow we could get Harry Potter's magic wand and we could come up with some sort of angerocious or whatever that got rid of all the anger, and zap it out of the world that fast. Ask yourself this question. If anger was out of the human heart and anger was out of the culture, how would trouble even happen? Or put it this way, how much trouble would be addressed if anger was transformed? See, Jesus knew left unchecked, anger will corrode the soul So it needed to be recognized and it needed to be transformed. Some years ago, in a church I was a part of, some friends in the church had a falling out. Both had their perspective. Both felt their perspective was right. Both felt the other had wronged them. And, to their credit, both knew they weren't completely innocent in the ordeal. But between them, there was tension, there was anger, there was discord, There was animosity, and they could not get through it. And yet, on a particular Sunday, I will never forget, they both filed forward in different lines and received communion. And I happened to notice this thing unfold, and it struck me right in the moment. I mean, the game struck me, meaning, like, what are we actually doing here? We just playing some religious game? Is that what this is? Now is the time in the service where we file forward and get communion. So they file forward and get communion. And this thing over here has nothing to do with this thing right here. And it just hit me. What is this game? So not too long after that, I invited both of them to come to my office. And there was a chalice. I had gone and got a chalice and put it on the table in my office. And we talked about what we receive at the communion table is to be given to those who hurt or disappoint us. And this is where the rubber hits the road for the follower of Jesus Christ. This is where we find out, is this just a game? Or does this flow into the actual real relationships that we have? Is this all just nice, flowery, religious talk? Or is this where the rubber hits the road? Does the table shape us? Does the table shape our relationships? Does the table shape, influence, impact how we do conflict 
Or is the table a nice thing we occasionally do when we're at church? What's actually happening at this table? Well, that situation ended with one person more than willing to move toward reconciliation and one person very unwilling to move toward reconciliation. And the fallout continued and the tension remains. So the real question is not how that situation worked out. The real question is this. If you and the person whose name you wrote on the paper could pull up two chairs and sit together in front of this table, eyeball to eyeball, in the shadow of the cup and in the shadow of the bread, would you allow the Spirit of God to guide the relationship toward reconciliation? Would your experience of the table, would your understanding of the table shape you toward love and toward grace and toward forgiveness. There's more to reconciliation than forgiveness for sure. But forgiveness is, a, is crucial in the process of reconciliation. And I believe from the many years I've spent doing this work that unforgiveness plagues many Christian hearts. And the bitterness, the pain, the memory still lives on long after we've said, I forgive you. And the memory and the bitterness and the pain still influences and it still shapes how we are in relationships. We clutch these things with closed hands. I've thought about this before, being in conversations with people and they'll ask me something about my past and I'll say, yeah, you know, I really I don't deal with that much anymore. It's kind of behind me. God has led me down this journey and it's not a big deal for me anymore. And I get this thought in my head, you know what you ought to do right now? You ought to shut your mouth. And you should tell that person, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go meet with Julie without me and ask her if I still live with that thing. Because she'll give you the truth answer. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, right after Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, what we call the Lord's Prayer, he says this very provocative thing. He says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I think what Jesus is getting at is something like this. If you are not willing to engage in the process of gradually forgiving those who have hurt you, then you do not really understand the magnitude of your own sin against the holy God, and you do not really grasp the extent of your own alienation, and you especially do not grasp the extravagant love and grace God has poured out for you in Christ. Forgiveness and reconciliation, in other words, is a sign of the kingdom of God. And it is a sign in those who claim to know the king. Again, James Smith, in a broken and fragmented world, the church is called to be the first fruits of a new creation by embodying a reconciled community. And the way we begin to learn that is at the communion table. The habits and practices of examination and reconciliation that are part of the Eucharist are like training wheels meant to let us try out forgiveness and reconciliation. So there's a vision here I hope we continue to realize as a congregation, as a we. We, as a congregation, are to be a community of healing and restoration and reconciliation in this broken world. 
which means all of the differences that create tension and pressure and anger and hatred and screaming and yelling out in the world, all of those differences are to gather at this table of reconciliation where there is grace and there is healing and there is forgiveness. People who are unlike us in whatever way should walk through those doors into this room, come to your small group or otherwise interact with you, and when they do, people who are unlike us should find hope and love and grace because of the table flowing through us. The table inaugurates a new ethic of being and relating where we demonstrate the reconciling power of the risen Christ in real situations and in real relationships. So third and last, very quickly, I've said this throughout, but I need to say it once more, reconciliation is a process. Look down at the name on your paper again. Is reconciliation possible? Is forgiveness possible? And let's just say it. Forgiveness and reconciliation are high callings. Christians live by kingdom ethics. And grace and forgiveness and reconciliation are at the heart of kingdom ethics. And too often, and I want to be gentle on this if I can, too often we come upon a high calling like forgiveness and reconciliation and we dismiss it as impossible. That's just too hard, we might say. Or Jesus couldn't possibly be asking me to forgive and you fill in the blank. And because we can't get our minds around it, we dumb down kingdom ethics to fit into our system. smart guy named Miroslav Volv wrote and said it this way, we first deem the moral tug that our faith exerts on us to be impractical, then impractical slides into overly demanding, and eventually we reject what we once thought to be right as a course of action that is no longer viable. What he means is the first moral tug to say, I want to reconcile with that person, uh, becomes impractical, that's impossible, and then impractical becomes, oh, that's too hard anyway, and so then we reject the idea that I want to reconcile with that person because it's not viable or possible, and he goes on, in these and many other ways, we mold faith to fit our own desires and our own capacity to live in a given situation, and with regard to forgiveness and reconciliation, we mold faith to fit our own desires and our capacity to live in a given situation. That being said, reconciliation is a process, and it's often a long process. Not a one-time snap of a finger event. The table is not magic. The table is not Harry Potter's wand. It does not typically, with the wave, wipe away the pain and the heartache of a marriage or a friendship or a family relationship. Disappointments are not zapped into oblivion because we receive communion. Reconciliation is usually a gradual process. We grow toward it by inches. We gradually forgive far more than we instantly forgive. So the table can be an eye-opener, a catalyst into the process. God has forgiven and reconciled me. So how would he have me offer the same to the person on my paper? What small step might the Spirit want me to take? What prayer can I pray about this? How might the Spirit want to begin this long process of reconciliation? 
And this is, again, where the idea of exchanging places can be so powerful and transformative. Look again at your paper. Imagine if somehow the Spirit of God could help you exchange places with them. We pray for God's grace to get in their shoes and experience what they are experiencing. We feel their pain. We feel their situation. Years ago, I was interacting with someone who's very important to me. And I had anger toward this person. It had accumulated over many, many years. And it was just slowly driving a wedge between us. And I happened to be in a conversation with this person one afternoon. And they began to tell me, I asked a question out of the blue, and they began to tell me about their childhood. And in particular, their relationship with their father. And I could almost hear God's Spirit saying, listen very carefully to this. The person began describing the rejection they had experienced from their father, let's just say, 60 years earlier. And then they started crying. And something happened in me. The Spirit somehow transported me into their shoes. And all of a sudden, this other with whom I was angry was no longer this object I could retaliate against. I was in their shoes. Such a powerful thing. It's really easy to stand back and hear about stuff going on in the world and label this and condemn that and complain about the other, whatever the other is. But when we get in the other's shoes, something happens. And the process of forgiveness and reconciliation continues. Well, it's time for us to to perhaps do something about all this. And what we're going to do is take some time to just be with God in these things. This is sacred ground that we're walking across here. And so we want to give you space to be with Jesus in these moments we have left, to be present to him, present to his spirit, and to think more about the piece of paper and the name on it and the relationship and what God might want to do there. And there are several options that I want to encourage you in a moment. Uh, You might want to spend some time praying for the person. If you look up here, there's a station over there, there's a kneeler, there's a table, there's bread on the table, there's a communion tray, several of them. Same thing over here, a kneeler, communion uh, with bread and juice. And you might want to bring that piece of paper up to one of those kneelers and spend some time praying for that person and what the Spirit of God would have you do as a step toward reconciliation. There's also a communion station in the back to the right of the parent area where there's bread, there's a cup, there will be elders there if you'd like to go there and be served, if you would like to go there and be prayed for. They will pray for you over whatever it is that you're dealing with. There's also up front here, you can see this table is covered with pieces of paper. That's because one of the things we are inviting you to do today, not because everybody else is doing it, but if you have that piece of paper and that name and something in you is saying, I've got to let this go. I want to move toward reconciliation. So we're inviting you to bring that piece of paper forward when you're ready and simply put it on the communion table around the bread and around the cup as a way of saying the division, the hurt, the heartache, the brokenness. I want the presence of Jesus to bring healing to me and if possible to catalyze reconciliation in that relationship. 
just going to open up this time. Jordan's going to be singing. The song he sings is very much worth hearing the words. It's an invitation to come to the table. There, over here, here in the first service, people just wandered off wherever they wanted to, to be alone with God in these very real and, in many cases, very painful things. So let me ask you to bow your heads and pray. And when I finish, you're free to come and be in the presence of God. Lord Jesus Christ, we're grateful to you for the good word you have. That these things are not just hoops or rote actions we engage in. We're down into the nitty-gritty detail of life. And in this room, there are people and they have names on those pieces of paper and those people, some of them are dead. Some of them inflicted enormous damage and we are not foolish enough to think a moment like this eradicates that because it doesn't. But we pray for our own hearts in this that we'd be attentive to your spirit. We'd be open to your healing power, transforming work and reconciling power. And we offer ourselves to you, we offer this time to you, and pray that you will meet us as we encounter you. And we pray all this in Christ's name.